Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fiscamol, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, broadcasting from my apartment, La Chateau T-Dot, on the southwest corner of Durham, North Carolina. You might notice from the episode title that this is not a normal episode. This is the second in our Law 140 series on evidence, introducing you to how the rules of evidence work. And it's because last week was a long, flipping week. I did not have a chance to do an outline. I'm going to try and do one this week. I'm not going to guarantee it because y'all know my track record with midweek episodes has been hit or miss with an emphasis on the miss lately. Uh, But as far as law firm stuff goes... I've got a set of discovery responses due Wednesday, but other than that, the week is open, so I'm cautiously optimistic. And then this coming Saturday, I am judging a trial advocacy competition, but other than that, for the next few weekends, my weekends are empty, so hopefully we will be back on a regular rotation soon. All right, before we get into the meat and potatoes of this particular episode, we're going to talk about hearsay. But before we do that, if you have not already done so, please make sure to join the conversation online. The Twitter account is at Fiskamall. It is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. If you'd like to leave us a written comment, you can do that at Fiskamall.com. That is F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. And if you want to become one of our financial supporters, you can do that on Patreon.com slash Fisk. It's Patreon.com slash F-S-C-K. CK. I do want to make one quick note. Every now and again, as we have new subscribers come in, people ask where they can find the show notes that I talk about. I say, I'm going to give you a link in the show notes and everything else. And the short answer to that is, I don't really know. It depends on what app you're using. Everyone does it a little bit differently. I know the Apple Podcasts app actually changed how there's displays a few iterations back. If you ever wonder where something is, you can always go to our website, fiscamall.com. Each episode has links to every single thing that we talk about. So for this particular episode, you're going to have links to the 800 block of the Federal Rules of Evidence and six different Supreme Court cases because that's what we're going to discuss. In prior episodes, you'll see links to the news stories and so on. So if you don't see it in your podcast app of choice, uh, just know that you can always go to the website and it will be there. Okay, so let's talk about hearsay. And before we get into that, remember, go back to episode, I think it was 83, where we went over a high-level overview of the federal rules of evidence and how the system works. Remember, basically, evidence is usually admissible if it is relevant. Evidence is relevant if it has any tendency to make a material fact more or less likely. So that evidence is admissible unless there is a separate rule that provides for its exclusion. So that was the basic setup. We covered Rule 401, discussing evidence. We covered Rule uh, 403, where evidence is substantially more prejudicial than probative. Well, the way the federal rules of evidence are set up, certain stuff is put into different chunks. I call them blocks. Uh, But the 800 rules cover the concept of hearsay. And we're going to go over all seven of those. Hearsay is probably one of the most litigated aspects of the Federal Rules of Evidence of all time, and you're going to learn why in a minute. But people are probably wondering what it is. So hearsay is what it sounds like. You hear something and then you say it. So when I'm explaining it to first-year law students, I usually tell them to think of the telephone game that you hopefully played in elementary school. That's the one where all the kids line up side by side. Someone whispers into the first kid's ear something like rabbit, and then each kid repeats the word to the next kid down the line. And typically by the end, you end up with something like rutabaga, you know, not the original word that was provided. And hearsay normally is not admissible for that reason. It tends to be unreliable. The stuff that you've heard someone else say that you've then repeated, uh, you could misunderstand something, you could just hear the words wrong, you could deliberately misrepresent what was said. So we usually try to keep hearsay out. But hearsay has a bazillion exceptions. And we're going to go over every single one of them, uh, but just know there's over 30 different exceptions to the hearsay rule. No, I think it might actually be exactly at 30 because they recently changed some of the rules back in uh, 2011. Uh, But just know there's a lot of them. There's dozens for sure. So Black's Law Dictionary is what we attorneys rely on to define certain words, and they have a meaningful definition explaining what hearsay is. So in Black's, it says hearsay is traditionally testimony that is given by a witness who relates not what he or she knows personally, but what others have said 
and that is therefore dependent on the credibility of someone other than the witness. Such testimony is generally inadmissible under the rules of evidence. Because again, as we're weighing whether something is relevant or not, the judge, the jury, they're going to look at the credibility of the witness, whether or not they're responsive to the questions, whether or not what they say makes sense, how they physically conduct themselves. And if you're instead bringing in what someone else has said through that person, it makes it harder to kind of make that particular judgment call. So I need to make a disclaimer. I do this on all of these. And if I forget, I just want to reiterate it. The rules of evidence vary dramatically by state. So every state has a hearsay rule. Every state has hearsay exceptions. But those things vary state by state and between the state and the federal government. For example, there's a concept called a, uh, a party admission or what's called a statement by an opposing party. Under the federal rules of evidence, that is not hearsay at all. Under the North Carolina rules of evidence, it is hearsay, but it falls within one of the hearsay exceptions. So just know certain stuff like that is going to be different. I am only talking about the federal rules and Supreme Court uh, decisions interpreting the federal rules. So know that your state stuff may be a little bit different. Okay, so let's go through these one at a time. We have seven rules in the 800 block, and the meaning of hearsay has a three-part definition in Federal Rules of Evidence 801. So subpart A of that is defining what is a statement, and it says, quote, statement means a person's oral assertion, written assertion, or nonverbal conduct if the person intended it as an assertion. It then describes a declarant and says, quote, a declarant means the person who made a statement. And then it defines hearsay as, quote, hearsay means a statement that subpart one, the declarant does not make while testifying at the current trial or hearing. And subpart two, a party offers in evidence to prove the truth of the matter asserted in the statement. So what we do as lawyers is we try and shorten that down for ease of reference. The short legalese version of hearsay is that hearsay is an out-of-court statement offered for the truth of the matter asserted. That's usually how we uh, explain it to people. Now, if you know lawyers or you have lawyers in your life or you are in fact a lawyer, you can tell already from the definition that there are a lot of things people are going to fight over about whether or not a thing is hearsay before we ever even get into the hearsay exceptions. So, for example, what is a statement? You know, typically a photo is not a statement. A video is not a statement. But what about the timestamp on the video? Is that something that will qualify as a statement? Is it designed to be an assertion? Are questions considered statements? You know, you would have, did you hit your wife, which I would say is not a a statement of any kind, But if that were instead rephrased to, when did you stop hitting your wife, there's an assertion embedded in there. So if that came in, would that be hearsay or not? Uh, Does it apply to words that have independent legal meaning? So if we were to enter into a contract, uh, words of offer, words of acceptance, those have independent legal significance separate and apart from the truth of the matter contained there in it. So is that hearsay or not? All of this stuff has been thought about. You know, What is a declarant? So going back to the issue of a photo or a video, the timestamp on it, the rules on declarants say a person who made a statement. So would that ever include a machine, a camera? What about uh, artificial intelligence stuff like Alexa? Could that be treated as a person under the rules of evidence because it could make statements based on certain things? Uh, And then, of course, you have what does it mean to offer the statement into evidence to prove the truth of the matter asserted in it? So, for example, in the first episode on this this series where we went over uh, examples of what could be relevant evidence – I mentioned the customer at a fast food restaurant telling employees that there was a spill on the floor. So the statement, Bob told the cashier there was a spill on the floor, that would normally be hearsay if it's offered to prove that there was, in fact, a spill. But what if instead it was offered to prove that the kitchen staff knew they should have checked the customer area of the restaurant? So rather than offering it to prove that there was, in fact, a spill – offering it to instead show that the staff was put on notice, that they needed to make sure they were monitoring conditions within the restaurant. So those are the types of things that comprise a big chunk 
of fights about hearsay, whether or not it is in fact hearsay at all before we ever get into whether or not a hearsay exception applies. So that is in Rule 801. And in Rule 802, you get a prohibition on hearsay. It says hearsay typically is inadmissible. And the reason why is that it's presumed that it's not going to be reliable. That's the basis for why Rule 802 exists. And what you're going to find is that each of the hearsay exceptions, theoretically, is based on a notion that the circumstances relating to it make it more likely to be reliable. But also in 802, in the federal rules, which again, this doesn't apply necessarily in all of the states, so we're talking about the federal rules here, you have two carve-outs. So you have a carve-out for a witness's prior statements Those are considered not hearsay. So if it's something where someone said something before and you want to attack what's called impeach their credibility with a prior statement, you can use that and it's not considered hearsay. It's excluded from the hearsay rule entirely. It still has to be relevant, which usually it is because it goes to the witness's credibility, but it is not considered hearsay. And in the federal rules, admissions or statements rather by an opposing party are not considered hearsay because you don't need reliability. There's an assumption that as part of the adversarial process, each side is going to talk about what the other side supposedly said, and they'd be subject to cross-examination on that. So party statements are removed from the notion of hearsay entirely in the federal rules. So that's what Rule 802 provides. And then you get into two sets of rules, 803 and 804, that dive into a flying fuckload of exceptions to the hearsay rule. And in law school, you got to learn all of these for the tests and the bar exam, and it drives me nuts. But the thing to note on the front end is that they're divided into two chunks. So you have 23 exceptions that are available no matter what. They're the kind of the what we call the standard exceptions. And then you have a separate set of exceptions in Rule 804. There are five of those that are only available if the declarant is unavailable to testify. So you have 23 exceptions that apply regardless. You have five that only apply when someone is unavailable. And as we get into these exceptions, I'm not going to go into too much detail about court cases that have interpreted them. Just know every single piece of this has been litigated somewhere, whether it's in district court or the court of appeals. But the link that I'm going to give you to the Cornell University's uh, Legal Information Institute, they also have the notes from the advisory committee that put together these draft rules. And the notes for this stuff are fantastic because they explain why the exception was created and they also include citations to applicable court cases if you want to learn more. So go to the show notes, make sure you click through the advisory committee notes and know that that stuff is all there if you would like to learn more about it. So we're going to go through the 23 standard hearsay exceptions. Number one is what's called a present sense impression. And the rule says that is, quote, a statement describing or explaining an event or condition made while or immediately after the declarant perceived it. So, for example, Bob said it was raining. That would be considered a present sense impression. Bob observed the rain while it was happening. He's made that statement out loud. So another witness bringing that in, the assumption is that that is more reliable because it was just a statement about his present sense impression made at the time. The second one is called an excited utterance, Rule 803, Subpart 2. And that is, quote, a statement relating to a startling event or condition made while the declarant was under the stress of excitement that it caused. So if you're reading something in a transcript or a fact pattern, if you happen to be a law student, you can tell something is an excited utterance by the fact there's an exclamation point there. And the idea there is that because you're under this stress, you don't have the mental faculties to come up with a lie. So, for example, let's say um, Jared witnesses a car accident. Someone flies through a red light, T-bones someone else, and Jared says, holy shit, that guy just T-bones such and such. And then a witness in the later auto accident case wants to bring into evidence what Jared supposedly said. That would typically qualify as an excited utterance. Uh, Subpart three is the then existing mental, emotional, or physical condition of the declarant, which says, quote, a statement of the declarant's then existing state of mind, such as motive, intent, or plan, uh, or emotional, sensory, or physical condition, such as mental feeling, pain, or bodily health, 
but not including a statement of memory or belief to prove the fact remembered or believed unless it relates to the validity or terms of the declarant's will. Uh, so basically, if someone said, I intend to go kill that guy, and a witness later testifies that that statement was made, that is that person's then existing mental state. So typically that would be allowed to come in because the assumption there is you wouldn't say that type of shit out loud if it was something that could potentially incriminate you. Uh, you're just kind of you know extemporaneously talking, and that type of stuff is considered to be admissible. Uh, subpart 4, 8034, is a statement made for medical diagnosis or treatment. And that says, quote, a statement that subpart A is made for and is reasonably pertinent to medical diagnosis or treatment, and subpart B describes medical history, past or present symptoms or sensations, their inception or their general cause. That is admissible because the assumption is you're not going to lie to your doctor. That's why that is theoretically more reliable and why we let it in. I actually just had a case with this two Mondays ago, one of those trials, that we, or was it the three Mondays ago trial? One of the trials that we had talked about, uh, we actually had to have medical records introduced into evidence because my client had a concussion, and as part of that treatment, he explained what parts of it he remembered, and part of what he remembered was a fire poker being used to bash him in the head, and it just so happened that the fire poker was used by his ex-wife. So we had to get those records into evidence both to show the concussion and to tie the fire poker to her or tie the fire poker to his injury. And then we in turn tied the fire poker to her through separate examination. Uh, so subpart five is what's called a recorded recollection. And that rule says, quote, a record that subpart A is on a matter the witness once knew about but now cannot recall well enough to testify fully and accurately. Subpart B was made or adopted by the witness when the matter was fresh in the witness's memory. And subpart C accurately reflects the witness's knowledge. That is what's necessary to prove a thing is a recorded recollection. And the rule also provides, quote, if admitted, the record may be read into evidence but may be received as an exhibit only if it is offered by an adverse party. So you can't, if you're putting on your case and you're trying to have a recorded recollection into evidence, you're only allowed to read it. You can't actually give it to the jury for them to take back to the jury room. Uh, I'm sure there are other examples of this, but the most common I tend to see uh, are portions of police reports, like the officer narrative is typically considered a recorded recollection, and then you have diary entries. So if someone's writing in a diary about what's happened, they can't necessarily remember it. That diary is an out-of-court statement, and you're offering the information to prove the matters asserted therein. Uh, so it would normally be excluded, but we have this recorded recollection exception. Uh, so six and seven go together. They're used for different purposes, but they relate to regularly conducted activity. Uh, we tend to call part six the business records exception. It says, quote, a record of an act, event, condition, opinion, or diagnosis if, subpart A, the record was made at or near the time by or from information transmitted by someone with knowledge, subpart B, the record was kept in the course of a regularly conducted activity of a business, organization, occupation, or calling, whether or not for profit, subpart C, making the record was a regular practice of that activity, Subpart D, all these conditions are shown by the testimony of the custodian or other qualified witness or by a certification that complies with Rule 902 Subpart 11 or 12 or with a statute permitting certification. And Subpart E, the opponent does not show that the source of information or the method or circumstances of preparation indicate a lack of trustworthiness. So if all of these elements are met, Thing was recorded by someone with knowledge at the time as part of a regularly conducted business activity, etc., etc. It constitutes a business record or, quote, a record of a regularly conducted activity. So subpart 7 of Rule 803 is the absence of that type of record. And it says evidence that a matter is not included in a record described in paragraph 6, which is the business records, is admissible to the hearsay exception if, quote, subpart A, the evidence is admitted to prove that the matter did not exist or occur. Subpart B, a record was regularly kept for a matter of that kind. And subpart C, the opponent does not show that the possible source of the information or other circumstances indicate a lack of trustworthiness. So basically, if the business is doing this thing regularly, 
Um, I'm trying to think of a good example. You always pay your bills. So let's say you pay your power bill every month and you have the power bills entered into evidence to show you've paid them every month and there's a particular month where you did not pay them. You could point to the fact that there is no record of payment for that particular month to prove that the payment was not made, if that makes sense. So think of six and seven together, the business record exception and the absence of the business record exception. Subpart eight applies to public records. So think of things like police reports. uh, And it says, quote, a record or statement of a public office if subpart A, it sets out one, the office's activities, two, a matter observed while under a legal duty to report, but not including in a criminal case, a matter observed by law enforcement personnel, or three, in a civil case or against the government in a criminal case, factual findings from a legally authorized investigation. And subpart B, the opponent does not show that the source of information or other circumstances indicate a lack of trustworthiness. So I don't really know why this materialized, but essentially the public records exception is not usually used for police reports, at least here in North Carolina. They will usually use the business records exception instead. I guess it's easier to get that stuff in, uh, but because police departments conduct regularly conduct an activity, uh, it qualifies under the business records exception as well. So, but that is public records. And then you have nine, which is a piece of that public records of vital statistics, which will be quote, a record of a birth, death or marriage if reported to a public office in accordance with a legal duty. And then 10 ties in with eight. It is the absence of a public record, similar to the absence of a business record. It says, quote, testimony, or a certification under Rule 902 that a diligent search failed to disclose a public record or statement. So that's the the thing. It's testimony or a certification that a diligent search failed to disclose a record or statement. If, subpart A, the testimony or certification is admitted to prove that the record or statement does not exist, or subpart two, a matter did not occur or exist if a public office regularly kept a record or statement for a matter of that kind, Uh, and subpart B, in a criminal case, a prosecutor who intends to offer a certification provides written notice of that intent at least 14 days before trial, and the defendant does not object in writing within seven days of receiving the notice unless the court sets a different time for the notice or the objection. So just like you can have a hearsay exception to admit a public record, you can admit that a public record does not exist if you are trying to prove that the particular event did not happen. Uh, So exception 11. So we're at rule 803.11 are records of religious organizations concerning personal or family history. Because remember, all sorts of things can come before the courts. So what this one says is, quote, a statement of birth legitimacy, ancestry, marriage, divorce, death, relationship by blood or marriage, or similar facts of personal or family history contained in a regularly kept record of a religious organization. Those are admissible as an exception to the hearsay rule. Uh, Subpart 12 is part of that same thing. Those are certificates of marriage, baptism, and similar ceremonies. It says, quote, a statement of fact contained in a certificate, part A, made by a person who is authorized by a religious organization or by law to perform the act certified, part B, attesting that the person performed a marriage or similar ceremony or administered a sacrament, and part C, purporting to have been issued at the time of the act or within a reasonable time after it. Then you have part 13, which is family records, and that says, quote, a statement of fact about personal or family history contained in a family record, such as a Bible, genealogy, chart, engraving on a ring, inscription on a portrait, or engraving on an urn or burial marker. So those three, 11, 12, and 13, tie to people's personal and family histories as exceptions to the hearsay rule. Uh, Part 14 are records of documents that affect an interest in property. And that rule provides, quote, the record of a document that purports to establish or affect an interest in property if, part A, the record is admitted to prove the content of the original recorded document along with its signing and its delivery by each person who purports to have signed it, B, the record is kept in a public office, and C, a statute authorizes recording documents of that kind in that office. So if you're fighting with your neighbors over your uh, contours of your land, 
that would potentially apply. Uh, 15 ties into that statements and documents that affect an interest in property. That says, quote, a statement contained in a document that purports to establish or affect an interest in property if the matter stated was relevant to the document's purpose, unless later dealings with the property are inconsistent with the truth of the statement or the purport of the document. You have 16, which is statements in ancient documents. And this always makes me laugh when we study it. Uh, A statement in an ancient document is, quote, a statement in a document that was prepared before January 1st, 1998, and whose authenticity is established. So, for example, my mom kept the newspaper from the day I was born. So that would qualify as an ancient document and statements in it would be admissible if they were relevant and the authenticity of the paper could be established. Uh, So we have subpart 17. These are market reports and similar commercial publications. For example, how the stock market did on any particular day. It says, quote, market quotations, lists, directories, or other compilations that are generally relied on by the public or by persons in particular occupations. Those could be admissible as hearsay exceptions. Uh, Part 18. These are statements in learned treatises, periodicals, or pamphlets. Uh, So as far as from a practice standpoint, we would typically see these in law review journals, uh, statements from if it's something relating to science, so science journals, that sort of thing. And it says, quote, a statement contained in a treatise, periodical or pamphlet if a the statement is called to the attention of an expert witness on cross-examination or relied on by the expert on direct examination and B, the publication is established as a reliable authority by the expert's admission or testimony, by another expert's testimony, or by judicial notice. Uh, if admitted, the statement may be read into evidence, but not received as an exhibit. So this is similar to the recorded recollection. The jury can hear it, but they don't get to take it back with them to the jury room because they don't want the, we don't want the jury to give it too much importance. So a lot of studies that are used in court proceedings come in orally as part of this if you have an expert witness who relied on it as part of their expert report. Uh, Part 19, reputation concerning personal or family history. So this is different from a statement uh, that we talked about earlier, the actual family statements. This one is a reputation thing, what other people have said about you. And it provides, quote, a reputation among a person's family by blood, adoption, or marriage or among a person's associates, or in the community, concerning the person's birth, adoption, legitimacy, ancestry, marriage, divorce, death, relationship by blood, adoption, or marriage, or similar facts of personal or family history. So if you're adopted by somebody, but you can't find any records of it, the reputation in the community that you, in fact, were adopted by that person is admissible, even though it would normally be hearsay. Uh, Exception 20. Reputation concerning boundaries or general history. So this is the same type of thing except apply to the land statements that we talked about in 15 and 16. Uh, It says, quote, a reputation in a community arising before the controversy concerning boundaries of land in the community or customs that affect the land or concerning general historical events important to that community, state, or nation. Uh, Subpart 21 is reputation concerning character, quote, a reputation among a person's associates or in the community concerning the person's character. Exception 22 is a judgment of a previous conviction, and that says, quote, evidence of a final judgment of conviction would qualify as a hearsay exception if, part A, the judgment was entered after a trial or a guilty plea, but not a nolo contendere plea. Part B, the conviction was for a crime punishable by death or by imprisonment for more than a year. Part C, the evidence is admitted to prove any fact essential to the judgment. And D, when offered by the prosecutor in a criminal case for a purpose other than impeachment, the judgment was against the defendant. The rule continues, quote, the pendency of an appeal may be shown but does not affect admissibility. So we most often will see this in civil cases. If someone has been convicted of a felony, that's the reference where it's imprisonment for more than a year, uh, that is admissible to try and challenge whether or not that person is credible or not. That's separate 
from what we call crimes of moral turpitude, crimes of dishonesty, which don't necessarily have to be felonious to still be admissible. Because in that case, it's admissible because of the nature of the crime. You have a tendency to lie, but then all felonies usually are admissible if they meet those other elements. And then exception 23 are judgments involving personal, family, or general history, or a boundary. So you'll notice a theme here. So we had statements regarding each of those things. Then we had reputations regarding each of those things. Now we're at actual court judgments regarding each of those things. And it says, quote, a judgment that is admitted to prove a matter of personal, family, or general history, or boundaries, if the matter, part A, was essential to the judgment, and B, could be proved by evidence of reputation. That would make it admissible, even even if it were theoretically hearsay. So that is all the Federal Rule of Evidence 803, 23 exceptions to the hearsay rule. That's very exhaustive. And again, like I said, as law school, we had to learn all of them and it sucked. Well, then we get into Rule 804, which applies if a witness is unavailable. And what unavailable means, well, it means a few things, and there's a, a definition within the rule itself, but Think, of course, if they're dead. I mean, that matters. Uh, but you also have situations where they're out of the jurisdiction. You know, if someone lives in another country, they can't typically be subpoenaed to testify. The federal rules provide, I believe it's a 100-mile boundary from where the proceeding is taking place as to whether or not someone can be subpoenaed to be there. Uh, you also have issues about privilege. So, for example, in most states, there's a marital privilege that says one spouse can't be forced to testify against another unless the other spouse consents. And state-level privileges, and we're going to cover those in a later podcast, are typically applied in federal courts, but the state law governs the privilege. So we're thinking here about declarants who are in, unavailable. They're unable to testify as witnesses because they just cannot be brought to court. And there are five exceptions that apply in that rule. The first is former testimony. And that one says, quote, testimony that A, was given as a witness at a trial, hearing, or lawful deposition, whether given during the current proceedings or a different one, and B, is now offered against a party who had, or in a civil case whose predecessor in interest had, an opportunity and similar motive to develop it by direct, cross, or redirect examination. So one of the reasons why lawyers like to do depositions is because it locks in stories. So if a witness dies or is killed, which you'll occasionally see in criminal cases, their former testimony is still admissible because the person was sworn and had the ability to be confronted and everything else. Uh, exception two are statements under the belief of imminent death. And that says, quote, in a prosecution for homicide or in a civil case, a statement that the declarant, while believing the declarant's death to be imminent, made about its cause or circumstances. So if I'm shot, I believe I'm going to die, and I say out loud, Bob shot me. A witness wants to testify that I said Bob shot me. That normally would be hearsay, but because I've made the statement under belief of imminent death, it could come in under that exception. Now notice, that's different from the excited utterance in the original. So if I said it right after I was shot, it could be admissible as an excited utterance or a statement under the belief of imminent death. But let's say that I get shot, I go to the hospital, and I'm progressively getting worse, but the excitement has faded away. That would not be admissible as an excited utterance, but it would be admissible as a statement made under the belief of imminent death. And notice there's no requirement that I actually die. I just have to believe that my death is imminent at the time the statement is made. All right, exception three. So we're at rule 804, subpart three, is a statement against interest. And that says, quote, a statement that A, a reasonable person in the declarant's position would have made only if the person believed it to be true, because when made, it was so contrary to the declarant's proprietary or pecuniary interest or had so great a tendency to invalidate the declarant's claim against someone else or to expose the declarant to civil or criminal liability, and B, is supported by corroborating circumstances that clearly indicate its trustworthiness if it is offered in a criminal case as one that tends to expose the declarant to criminal liability. So if you confess something 
or you make a statement that's not necessarily a confession, but it would be obvious that you had in fact committed a particular crime, uh, that could qualify as a statement against interest. And we're going to talk a bit about how that applies when you're being interrogated by the police later on when we get into the Supreme Court cases. But just know that is a statement against interest and normally would be admissible as a hearsay exception. Now note, this is also separate from the admission by an opposing party or a statement by an opposing party. Forgive me, I keep saying party admissions because that's how the rule used to read. They were reworded back in, I want to say, 2011 to make it statements by an opposing party because those usually are admissible even though they don't necessarily have to admit anything. So the use of the word admission was considered confusing. Uh, But that's how I learned it, and it's still rooted firmly in my head as part of all of the trial advocacy competitions that I coach and judge. Um, But a statement by an opposing party normally would be admissible in a criminal proceeding because the defendant is the opposing party, but it could also be offered under Rule 804.3 as a statement against interest depending on the particular circumstances. Uh, Subpart 4, statement of personal or family history. This is similar to the rules in 803. It says, quote, a statement about the declarant's own birth, adoption, legitimacy, ancestry, marriage, divorce, relationship by blood, adoption, or marriage, or similar facts of personal or family history, even though the declarant had no way of acquiring personal knowledge about that fact, or B, another person concerning any of these facts, as well as death if the declarant was related to the person by blood, adoption, or marriage, or was so intimately associated with the person's family that the declarant's information is likely to be accurate. So under the rules in 803, there's an assumption that there's some degree of uh, confirmation for what has taken place, whereas in this case, that confirmation is not required because the person's not available. They're dead or something else has happened, so we allow that to come in anyway. And then it's subpart six, but this is the fifth exception, is a statement offered against a party that wrongfully caused the declarant's unavailability. And this is, the, this is something that was created really to deal with gangs killing off adverse witnesses. And it says, quote, a statement offered against a party that wrongfully caused or acquiesced in wrongfully causing the declarant's unavailability as a witness and did so intending that result. So if a particular witness has made statements and the person accused has them killed, All of that person's statements can be brought in as statements offered against a party that wrongfully caused their unavailability. So that is Rule 804. Rule 805 is fairly short. It talks about what's called hearsay within hearsay. Uh, So, for example, if you want to have a 911 call entered into evidence, usually what the 911 operator says the victim told her is hearsay And then if that victim says, well, Bob said he was going to kill me, that is hearsay within hearsay. And what Rule 805 says is that part's fine. It doesn't matter if it's hearsay within hearsay as long as each piece of the hearsay fits within an exception. So the victim saying Bob said he's going to kill me would be an exception as it's either not hearsay because he's an opposing party or it was part of an excited utterance or something similar. And then the actual 911 call could be a business record exception or a public activity exception, that sort of thing. You have an exception covering each piece of the hearsay, therefore the whole thing can come in. Uh, You also see this with police reports where the officer narrative, they're recording what witnesses have said. Uh, You don't see it particularly with accident reports where some of the stuff like the names and ages and so on of the witnesses is not typically hearsay. It's just identifying information is admissible, but then the actual narrative, it's not. So in that case, you have a few options. I mean, sometimes the entire document is excluded. A lot of times, instead, the hearsay pieces are redacted. They're blacked out. Uh, But Rule 805 covers hearsay within hearsay. Rule 806 talks about credibility. So normally, when a witness testifies, their credibility can be attacked on cross-examination And then it can be what's called bolstered or supported on redirect examination. Well, Rule 806 says that same basic approach applies to declarants, people who have made statements that are not here as witnesses. Uh, Their credibility can be attacked or supported, rehabilitated, bolstered as well. That's what Rule 806 provides. And then Rule 807 
is kind of the umbrella catch-all. So parts of Rule 803 and 804 were actually removed and moved over to Rule 807. And what that says is, quote, Under the following circumstances, a hearsay statement is not excluded by the rule against hearsay, even if the statement is not specifically covered by a hearsay exception in Rule 803 or 804. Part 1, the statement has equivalent circumstantial guarantees of trustworthiness. Part 2, it is offered as evidence of a material fact. Part 3, it is more probative on the point for which it is offered than any other evidence that the proponent can obtain through reasonable efforts. And Part 4, admitting it will best serve the purposes of these rules and the interests of justice. So if some particular type of hearsay is proposed as evidence that doesn't fit one of these exceptions already, this residual exception allows things to come in if those four elements are met. The rule continues with respect to notice. It says, quote, the statement is admissible only if before the trial or hearing the proponent gives an adverse party reasonable notice of the intent to offer the statement and its particulars, including the declarant's name and address, so that the party has a fair opportunity to meet it. So that is the text of the 800 block of the Federal Rules of Evidence. Now, this stuff ends up interacting with the Constitution in certain parts, including the Fifth and Sixth Amendments. So we're going to talk a bit about the Fifth Amendment, statements that you make to police when you're arrested. The text of the Fifth Amendment says, quote, no person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury, except in cases arising in the land or naval forces or in the militia when in actual service in time of war or public danger, nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb, nor shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. There's a lot of stuff in there, but that snippet of it, nor shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, uh, is the part that we're concerned about when it comes to hearsay, because out-of-court confessions by a defendant could potentially be hearsay. So you had the case of Miranda v. Arizona, which most everyone has heard about, your Miranda rights. And this was from 1966, and it was actually a consolidation of four different cases. And Chief Justice Earl Warren wrote the opinion... And he explained in the opening what it was about. He says, quote, The cases before us raise questions which go to the roots of our concepts of American criminal jurisprudence. The restraints society must observe consistent with the federal constitution and prosecuting individuals for crime. More specifically, we deal with the admissibility of statements obtained from an individual who is subjected to custodial police interrogation and the necessity for procedures which assure that the individual is accorded his privilege under the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution not to be compelled to incriminate himself. So after that, the court goes through the history of this right to not be a witness against yourself. It actually goes back in their estimation to the late 1600s in response to interrogation tactics that were taking place in continental Europe back then. And there was a Latin phrase that they talked about, uh, nemo tenetur seipsum accusari. And I'm, I don't speak Latin, so apologies if I butchered that. But the translation is, no one is bound to accuse himself. And what the court says and I'm going to read you some extended quotes. It's a long opinion. I apologize at the lengthy narration, but it covers stuff fairly well. Uh, they say, quote, An understanding of the nature and setting of this in-custody interrogation is essential to our decisions today. The difficulty in depicting what transpires at such interrogations stems from the fact that in this country they have largely taken place incommunicado. From extensive factual studies undertaken in the early 1930s, including the famous Wickersham Report to Congress by a presidential commission, it is clear that police violence and the third degree flourished at that time. In a series of cases decided by this court long after these studies, the police resorted to physical brutality, beating, hanging, whipping, and to sustained and protracted questioning incommunicado in order to extort confessions. The Commission on Civil Rights in 1961 found much evidence to indicate that some policemen still resort to physical force to obtain confessions. 
The use of physical brutality and violence is not, unfortunately, relegated to the past or to any part of the country. Only recently, in Kings County, New York, the police brutally beat, kicked, and placed lighted cigarette butts on the back of a potential witness under interrogation for the purpose of securing a statement incriminating a third party. And they note that in each of these four cases that they consolidated together for hearing, which were Miranda v. Arizona, Vignera v. New York, Westover v. United States, and California v. Stewart, they note that each of these guys were brought into special interrogation rooms and interrogated for extended lengths of time. And what the court said was that even though they weren't physically beaten and they weren't psychologically tricked, the sheer fact that they were held without an ability to contact an attorney or anybody else as a part of this extended interrogation still violated human dignity and did not comport with the Fifth Amendment right not to incriminate yourself. And they say, quote, Our holding will be spelled out with some specificity in the pages which follow, but briefly stated, it is this. The prosecution may not use statements, whether exculpatory or inculpatory, stemming from custodial interrogation of the defendant, unless it demonstrates the use of procedural safeguards effective to secure the privilege against self-incrimination. By custodial interrogation, we mean questioning initiated by law enforcement officers after a person has been taken into custody or otherwise deprived of his freedom of action in any significant way. As for the procedural safeguards to be employed, unless other fully effective means are devised to inform accused persons of their right to silence and to assure a continuous opportunity to exercise it, the following measures are required. Prior to any questioning, the person must be warned that he has a right to remain silent, that any statement he does make may be used as evidence against him, and that he has a right to the presence of an attorney, either retained or appointed. The defendant may waive effectuation of these rights, provided the waiver is made voluntarily, knowingly, and intelligently. If, however, he indicates in any manner and at any stage of the process that he wishes to consult with an attorney before speaking, there can be no questioning. Likewise, if the individual is alone and indicates in any manner that he does not wish to be interrogated, the police may not question him. The mere fact that he may have answered some questions or volunteered some statements on his own does not deprive him of the right to refrain from answering any further inquiries until he has consulted with an attorney and thereafter consents to be questioned. Now, this was a landmark decision, and it was necessary to help limit police beatings, beating confessions out of people, literally. I mean, you, from this era in the 1930s, you would actually have mugshots where people would have black eyes and busted lips from when they were beaten during interrogation. Well, as, as expansive as this is, you listen to the, the opinion that I read to you, you notice there are some limitations. For example, it only applies to what is called custodial interrogation. So statements you made before you're arrested or after you're free to leave are just plain old statements. They can be entered as a statement by an opposing party. And it only applies to statements that the government wants to use at trial. So if you make a statement in violation of Miranda, it can be used by the prosecution to factor into plea negotiations, by police to know where to search for additional evidence and a whole host of stuff. The only time Miranda matters is if you're going to trial and they want to introduce that statement to the jury. So, for example, I do a lot of drug defense, and my clients routinely think that the cases are going to be thrown out because they're never informed of their Miranda rights, and they just talk to the police because they assume that because they're not Mirandized, anything they say can't be used. Well, what happens is the police then use that to conduct additional investigation, to talk to other witnesses, to find additional drugs, etc., etc., and by the time we get to court... I'm filing a motion to suppress to try and have evidence thrown out, but the judge says, no, this is going to come in because your client was an idiot and spoke to police, which led them to additional information. They don't need to use his statement. All they need to use is the drugs and the scales and the money that were found in his apartment based on a valid search warrant supported by the statements they did make because Miranda doesn't apply to seeking a search warrant, as an example. So Miranda was already limited. And now, basically, it doesn't really exist for practical purposes because in 2010, in a case of Burgoyce v. Tompkins, and then in 2013, Salinas v. Texas, I'm not going to bother reading the opinions for these. I'll give you links to both of them. They're both trash decisions. But what Burgoyce says was that your act of remaining silent 
does not count as an invocation of your Fifth Amendment right to remain silent, as stupid as that is. And then Salinas took that a step further and says that if you do remain silent without explicitly invoking your right to remain silent, your silence can be used against you in court. So if a police officer says, my God, you molested that little kid, and you don't say anything, that can be used against you because you were silent unless you explicitly say, I'm invoking my Fifth Amendment right to remain silent. It's so stupid. Both of them were 5-4 decisions. They're both utter fucking garbage. I hate the fact that they exist, but that's where we are. So that's the key set of cases, and I'm sure there are others, but those are the main ones, with respect to the Fifth Amendment and your right to not incriminate yourself. Well, then in the Sixth Amendment, we have what's called the Confrontation Clause. So the full text of the Sixth Amendment says, quote, In all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed, which district shall have been previously ascertained by law, and to be informed of the nature and cause of the accusation, to be confronted with the witnesses against him, to have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor, and to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. So that piece there, to be confronted with the witnesses against him, you can see how that matters with respect to the hearsay rule. Can hearsay come in if the person who said it isn't around for you to confront them? So the Supreme Court had a decision back in 1980. This is another one I'm not going to give you because it doesn't really matter anymore. It's Ohio versus Roberts. And essentially, they said the Confrontation Clause practically doesn't exist. They said that hearsay was admissible if it had indicia of reliability. It didn't matter whether or not the witness was around for you to confront them. If the statement had indicia of reliability, it was admissible under the hearsay rule. Well, fast forward to 2003, the case of Crawford versus Washington. Now, this was a 9-0 to decision. There is a separate piece as to whether or not Roberts, Ohio v. Roberts should be explicitly overturned. Seven of the justices said yes. So Ohio v. Roberts is no longer good law. It was overturned by Crawford v. Washington. And this was an opinion by Justice Scalia where he says, quote, Petitioner Michael Crawford stabbed a man who allegedly tried to rape his wife, Sylvia. At his trial, the state played for the jury Sylvia's tape-recorded statement to the police describing the stabbing, even though he had no opportunity for cross-examination. The Washington Supreme Court upheld Petitioner's conviction after determining that Sylvia's statement was reliable. So this is under the Ohio v. Roberts test that was in effect at the time. The question presented is whether this procedure complied with the Sixth Amendment's guarantee that in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to be confronted with the witnesses against him. So basically, this was a dispute over whether or not the guy who tried to rape Crawford's wife had drawn a weapon. Crawford said yes. The wife says she wasn't sure, but probably not. Well, the wife did not testify at the assault trial because of the marital privilege. So in this particular state of Washington, a spouse could not testify against another spouse without the defendant's spouse's consent. So what the prosecutor did was he played the tape of the wife being interrogated by police. That was the basis for this particular thing, and Crawford was convicted. So the court in this decision, again, I'm going to read you some snippets of it, but what they do is they start off going through the history of the Confrontation Clause. So they note, for example, that this goes all the way back to Roman times, was common in pre-colonial England, was extended to the colonies. They talk about certain trials, such as the treason trial of Sir Walter Raleigh, the person who the capital of the state of North Carolina is named after. And after going through all of this history, the court says, quote, this history supports two inferences about the meaning of the Sixth Amendment. First, the principal evil at which the Confrontation Clause was directed was the civil law mode of criminal procedure, and particularly its use of ex parte examinations as evidence against the accused. Ex parte means it's something that's happening without the knowledge of the other party, without that person being present. It was these practices that the Crown deployed in notorious treason cases like Walter Raleigh's, that the Marian statutes invited, and that English law's assertion of a right to confrontation was meant to prohibit, and that the founding-era rhetoric decried. The Sixth Amendment must be interpreted with this focus in mind. 
Accordingly, we once again reject the view that the Confrontation Clause applies of its own force only to in-court testimony, and that its application to out-of-court statements introduced at trial depends upon the law of evidence. Leaving the regulation of -of out-of-court statements to the law of evidence would render the Confrontation Clause powerless to prevent even the most flagrant inquisitorial practices. Raleigh was, after all, perfectly free to confront those who read Cobham's confession in court. This focus also suggests that not all hearsay implicates the Sixth Amendment's core concerns. An offhand, overheard remark might be unreliable evidence, and thus a good candidate for exclusion under hearsay rules, but it bears little resemblance to the civil law abuses the Confrontation Clause targeted. On the other hand, ex parte examinations might sometimes be admissible under modern hearsay rules, but the framers certainly would not have condoned them. The text of the Confrontation Clause reflects this focus. It applies to witnesses against the accused. In other words, those who bear testimony. Testimony, in turn, is typically a solemn declaration or affirmation made for the purpose of establishing or proving some fact. He's quoting from the dictionary here. An accuser who makes a formal statement to government officers bears testimony in a sense that a person who makes a casual remark to an acquaintance does not. The constitutional text, like the history underlying the common law right of confrontation, thus reflects an especially acute concern with a specific type of -of out-of-court statement. Although the results of our decisions have generally been faithful to the original meaning of the Confrontation Clause, the same cannot be said of our rationales. The Roberts Court conditions the admissibility of all hearsay evidence on whether it falls under a subquote, firmly rooted hearsay exception, or bears subquote, particularized guarantees of trustworthiness. This test departs from the historical principles identified above in two respects. First, it is too broad. It applies the same mode of analysis whether or not the hearsay consists of ex parte testimony. This often results in close constitutional scrutiny in cases that are far removed from the core concerns of the clause. At the same time, however, the test is too narrow. It admits statements that do consist of ex parte testimony upon a mere finding of reliability. This malleable standard often fails to protect against paradigmatic confrontation violations. Now, the court opinion goes on from there. We'll give you a link to the full thing in the show notes to read at your leisure. But Crawford v. Washington was a big deal. It fundamentally changed how prosecutions took place. It resurrected the confrontation clause and made it relevant again. But like with Miranda... The pro-police forces on the court, some conservative, some liberal, lost their fucking minds and tried to dial it back as much as they could, as quickly as they could. I'm trying to think of the sketch, and I wish Mike was here because he'd be able to fill me in. It might have been Saturday Night Live, but there was a comedy routine that was a frequent thing on some show back when I was younger where it might have been Antonio Banderas, I don't remember, but there's someone that was doing something and there were people in the background that were like, no, no, you can't do that, that's too sexy. And that was the gag. You know, dude was like taking off his hat, oh, it's too sexy, it's too sexy. Well, that same type of approach happened with Crawford. Like, this was a sexy court decision, this mattered, this protect defendants' rights. And the court was like, no, no, too sexy, let's dial it back. Because the next decision that they had after Crawford relating to this was Ohio v. Clark. Now, this was a a 9 to 0 decision in terms of its judgment. This involved a case where a child was living with his mom and her pimp. So the mom would be sent to go do prostitution, the pimp would abuse the kid, and one of the teachers of the child noticed that he was being abused and asked him questions about what was going on. And normally the kid is too young to testify, But based on his statements, he implicated the pimp, and at the trial, the teacher testified about what the kid said. And the argument was that this teacher is a government official, this is hearsay testimony used to implicate this particular guy, the kid needs to be available to confront the witness against the defendant, otherwise this stuff should be excluded. And the Supreme Court said no, that that was not the type of stuff that the Confrontation Clause focused on. And I'm going to give you the link to the opinion. It was by Justice Alito. I'm not terribly persuaded. Like, I agree with the core piece. I would not have found in favor of the defendant in that case. But Alito throws on a bunch of what we call dictum, 
Oberter dictum, just basically mental masturbation by a justice in the opinion that's not actually important to the court's underlying holding. And I'm going to read to you Scalia's concurrence, because remember, he wrote the Crawford v. Washington opinion, and now in this ruling in Ohio v. Clark, he sees Justice Alito trying to backtrack as much as he can, and he just writes this very what's the word I'm looking for? It's a, I would call it a fire concurrence. Like it's not really fire to lay people, but if you're a lawyer, like this type of stuff is like, damn, he really was kind of strident with his criticism of the court. And I'm going to read to you the entire thing. It's not terribly long, but Scalia writes, quote, I agree with the court's holding and with its refusal to decide two questions that are quite unnecessary to that holding. What effect Ohio's mandatory reporting law has in transforming a private party into a state actor for confrontation clause purposes, and whether a more permissive confrontation clause test, one less likely to hold the statements to be testimonial, should apply to interrogations by private actors. The statements here would not be testimonial under the usual test applicable to informal police interrogation. I write separately, however, to protest the court's shoveling of fresh dirt upon the Sixth Amendment right of confrontation so recently rescued from the grave in Crawford v. Washington. For several decades before that case, we had been allowing hearsay statements to be admitted against a criminal defendant if they bore indicia of reliability. Prosecutors, past and present, love that flabby test. Crawford sought to bring our application of the Confrontation Clause back to its original meaning, which was to exclude unconfronted statements made by witnesses, i.e. statements that were testimonial. We defined testimony as a solemn declaration or affirmation made for the purpose of establishing or proving some fact in the context of the Confrontation Clause, a fact potentially relevant to later criminal prosecution. Crawford remains the law. But when else has the categorical overruling, the thorough repudiation of an earlier line of cases been described as nothing more than, subquote, adopting a different approach? And here Scalia is quoting the majority opinion. He continues, as though Crawford is only a matter of twiddle-dumb, twiddle-dee preference, and the old pre-Crawford approach remains available. The author, he's referring to Justice Alito, unabashedly displays his hostility to Crawford and its progeny, perhaps aggravated by inability to muster the votes to overrule them. Crawford does not rank on the author of the opinion's top ten list of favorite precedents, and the author could not restrain himself from saying and saying and saying so. But snide detractions do no harm. They are just indications of motive. Dicta on legal points, however, can do harm, because though they are not binding, they can mislead. Take, for example, the opinion's statement that the primary purpose test is merely one of several heretofore unmentioned conditions, subquote, necessary, but not always sufficient, that must be satisfied before the clause's protections apply. That is absolutely false, and has no support in our opinions. The Confrontation Clause categorically entitles a defendant to be confronted with the witnesses against him, and the primary purpose test sorts out, among the many people who interact with the police informally, who is acting as a witness and who is not. Those who fall into the former category bear testimony and are therefore acting as witnesses subject to the right of confrontation. There are no other mysterious requirements that the court declines to name." The opinion asserts that future defendants and future Confrontation Clause majorities must provide, subquote, evidence that the adoption of the Confrontation Clause was understood to require the exclusion of evidence that was regularly admitted in criminal cases at the time of the founding. This dictum gets the burden precisely backwards, which is, of course, precisely the idea. Defendants may invoke their Confrontation Clause rights once they have established that the state seeks to introduce testimonial evidence against them in a criminal case without unavailability of the witness and a previous opportunity to cross-examine. The burden is upon the prosecutor, who seeks to introduce evidence over this bar to prove a long-established practice of introducing specific kinds of evidence, such as dying declarations, for which cross-examination was not typically necessary. A suspicious mind or even one that is merely not naive, might regard this distortion as the first step in an attempt to smuggle long-standing hearsay exceptions back into the Confrontation Clause. 
In other words, an attempt to return to Ohio v. Roberts. But the good news is that there are evidently not the votes to return to that halcyon era for prosecutors, and that dicta, even calculated dicta, are nothing but dicta. They are enough, however, combined with the peculiar phenomenon of a Supreme Court opinion's aggressive hostility to precedent that it purports to be applying to prevent my joining the writing for the court. I concur only in the judgment. And Scalia wrote that and was joined by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So you got a guy on the far right joined by a lady on the far left to say, hey, wait a minute, this Ohio v. Clark decision, the outcome was right, but the reasoning was bullshit. So we'll give you a link to that as well. So that's how the current state of the law plays when it comes to hearsay exceptions and both the Fifth and Sixth Amendments. That covers the expanse of the hearsay rules. And since we're currently pushing over an hour, it's probably a good spot for me to cut things off. So folks, I hope you liked what you've heard. We will have a third installment at some point. I'm not sure which particular rules of evidence we're going to cover yet. It will probably be 404B, prior bad acts, that sort of thing. Uh, But Make sure to go to show notes so you can check out the rule text, the advisory committee notes, the links to the Supreme Court opinions we've talked about. If you've liked what you've heard, please do us a favor. Leave us a five-star rating or a written review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen. Uh, We're on Spotify. I think I mentioned that. And on behalf of myself and Mike the Sound Guy and Chance the Pupper, thank you for listening, and we will talk to you soon. Have a great week. Take care.